0: Bienvenidas to
1: Merendiado.
0: Our guest today is Armando Minjares.
1: Armando Minjares is a Mexican interdisciplinary artist, designer, and community organizer. His artistic practice is guided by themes of displacement, collaboration, and empowerment to open spaces for the development of social change strategy
0: and creative expression. He has been the co-founder and creator of many community-focused arts initiatives bridging social justice, community organizing, and the arts in Kansas, USA, such as the Seed House, La Casa de la Semilla, the ICT Army of Artists, the North End Urban Arts Festival, and the Horizontes Project. He also runs a ceramic design studio called Del Norte Studio. Which sells beautiful ceramic for everyday use and it ships to Canada. In this interview, we chatted about community organizing
1: in Kansas's rural communities, how he produced the largest mural ever made, and kioskos and designing public space. Heads up, dear listeners, or snacks, if you like that name for yourselves, because I think you're all snacks. (laughs) Next week, is a break for the podcast, so expect your next episode of Radio Aluna Teatro Goodness to come at you on November 4th. That's two Wednesdays from now. With that said, let's dive into the episode.
2: I am currently located in Wichita, Kansas, USA. So right smack in the middle of the country. If you take a U.S. map and you fold it in fourths and then you open it up, that center point where the fold is, is like a few miles north of Wichita.
1: <laughs> How is it to be in the center of that situation right now?
2: In some instances, I feel uh, fortunate to not be in a super densely populated city, right? Like some of the coastal cities, yeah. or, or like even like, you know, you too, you're in Toronto. There's also the the flip side of that, that we are in a more rural, which tends to be uh, a little more conservative, uh, A.K.A um covid is a hoax type mm. of situation so you know there's no easy answer
0: so you were born in chihuahua right
2: correct but chihuahua yes
0: and but then you moved to kansas how did kansas looked in your mind before you moved there
2: oh goodness well i mean even the wizard of oz the wizard of oz was my only reference point to kansas and i didn't even know where kansas was or what it meant so i didn't really know much about it right as my brother my oldest brother moved to kansas uh in like 97 or 98 i'm not sure so that's when i actually kind of started hear more about it but even then it was sort of this far away land with there's tornadoes <laughs> and like and that's it right like Nothing about it was real in any way other than there's tornadoes and it's far away.
1: So that now now that you've lived there for a lot of your life, how how has that image shifted for you?
2: You know, it's really quite an interesting state. Most people think of it as this kind of, you know, a small town USA, which is true. uh, But it's much more than that, for sure.
1: Interesting. it's much more than that. Okay, well, what is
2: it? (laughs) Yeah. You know, uh, so through the work that I've done, you know, the research that I've done as an artist in in different art projects, I've learned uh, a lot of the history in this place. And there's a history of of resistance, you know, which I'm interested in being a, a community organizer and an activist too. I really appreciate that history of resistance that you find here. Like Carrie Nation, you know, she's known for really pushing for prohibition laws, you know, for alcohol. Uh, it, I love drinking, but, you know, I appreciate that the spirit to literally go with the hatchet and, like, you know, like break bottles and bars and, you know, like...
1: Like now, these days?
2: This no, this is prohibition time, right? So, like, a okay, hundred right, right, years right. ago, right? But, like, there's a history of that. You know, there's also uh, John Brown with abolition, you know, big abolitionists and and being this really radical figure uh, in the abolitionist movements. You know, there are stories of indigenous communities who you know, resisted, you know, the Western movement of um, of colonizers and European colonizers in the area. And it's really fascinating. And even part of Kansas, that corner of the southwest part of the state where I lived uh, in Ulysses is when I first moved. I lived in Garden City. Dodge City is part of that conglomeration. Dodge City, it's famous for kind of being this old west town with, you know, Billy the Kid and and all these, like, figures. All of that was part of, at one point, it was part of uh, Mexican territory, Mexican nation. So literally, a, a section of Kansas was Mexican territory. And then when you look at the... Demographic breakup of that population right now, you have those towns, majority are Mexican descent people and people of color. We're talking like 60%, 65% of the population in those towns are brown people and people, you know, mostly from Mexican descent. And to me, that's fascinating, right? It's almost like we managed to populate (laughs) some geographic boundary that at one point was Mexico. And of yeah. course, even that, you know, was that territory was indigenous territory before it was designated, you know, as part of the, the new Spain or whatever. It, it's just fascinating to learn that history, that there's a connection to to these places that go beyond sort of my own story of migration or, or movement, right, as a person in this land.
1: Because you're in a rural environment, how do you find that those rural histories impact the rest of your country? Because it's so easy to be so isolated. How can rural communities impact urban communities?
2: Yeah, so that is a a really interesting question. If I if I look at Wichita as an example, right, for that question, you know, this is a city that there's a lot of people here who come from those rural communities for a lot of those people, this is their big move, right? This is their, I'm going to the city move. I think I've been able to to be exposed to those smaller communities that I maybe understand them in a different way. And and, and it even applies to, to my own immigrant community. I mean, Parral, where I grew up, I, I really grew up with the mentality of being a small town guy, but then I moved from Parral to Ulysses, Kansas, population 6,000. And suddenly it's like, oh my God, this whole town is the size of my neighborhood, right? <laughs> you know, in is a small colonial, uh, colonial city, really densely populated, right? We're kind of on top of each other. So you still get a lot of like, sort of the very urban sense to it, even though it's a small city. Whereas in Ulysses, it's like, everything is so spread out. You have to drive, right? Like everything mm-hmm. is designed for vehicles. So anyway, like, and and looking at the immigrant community in Ulysses, a lot of them come from the rural parts of Chihuahua. Chihuahua is also a very rural state Mm -hmm. like Kansas, right? Where there's a lot of cattle industry and farming. Those are big industries there. So it's not dissimilar from Kansas. And then people move here because of the jobs, but then they realize that, oh, there's all, like, I can buy a farm. I can buy some acreage and have pigs and chickens and horses. So suddenly they realize that they can have they can have a very similar lifestyle than they did back in Chihuahua or in Durango, which is where a lot of the people living here come from. So it's it's something familiar, even though the language it's different. The culture, for the most part, is different you find similarities in the way that you can carry on with your life, right? This kind of rural farm lifestyle. And with that, it comes like this really, people really appreciate uh, physical work, hard work that is physical, right? Mm -hmm. And so then I've been able to see kind of these bridges connected between very conservative and sometimes even racist uh, white people that live in rural areas build friendships with like Mexican immigrants and their point of connection, that bridge that connects them, it's their appreciation of like labor and and hard work, right? The hard work that that, that comes with running a farm or living in a farm. Uh, and to me, that's fascinating. Like, you can have these very different life experiences and very different experiences. Um, Ideologies, yet you find common ground, and often it's connected to like the land, right, and like how laborious it is to live from the land, and and there's that. I don't know what to make of it. Like it it it, it, it complicates my own understanding of of my own world, right? It's easy to dismiss someone because of the, their beliefs or their politics, uh, but then when you go out there. And you're like, okay, like I know that you're racist because I've seen you and I've known you for years. Mm -hmm. But also like you have all these friends who are Mexican immigrants, and you're and you say right, you're like, Oh, they're okay because you know they he's one of the good Mexicans, right? Yeah, that's super racist. But also I understand that you mean it in the sense that you found a way to connect and find value and and your humanity, right? And it's so odd. And, you know, if anything, like you said, it complicates my own understanding of, of these communities. And, and it makes it difficult to dismiss somebody just based on their politics and ideologies, right? It forces me to continue to look for that humanity that I so desperately want people to see within me.
0: Talking about it, Ulysses, that's how you said it, say Yep, it, right? Ulysses. Ulysses. And, and there's this little documentary, and I love that they were doing the celebration of La Virgen. Right. El Cupayos de la Virgen, that was like 12th of December. And and I was looking at it, and, and I kept thinking, like, I love how as, as immigrants, sometimes we move from one place to another, but we end up recreating what we had at home, which it's great for some people, but I, as a person who was like, I identify as queer, reaching out to let's say my immigrant uh Mexican community here I was so terrified because I was like I identify with everything you're showing me because I grew up with every tradition that we all grew up but uh the part of me that is like queer I don't feel safe in this community as a community organizer I that I have that question for you is like how would you when you work with these communities how do you approach uh, the flaws? Like, how do we keep getting tradition, yeah, passing tradition on, but shifting it that it's a little bit more inclusive and loving?
2: No, that, that's a great question. I mean, it's a part of the work. I think that, I mean, I have the same fears, right? And a lot. Of, in, when I started doing community organizing, I was living in Western Kansas and I was younger and I wasn't out to everyone, right? So there, uh, there was still, I, w- I, 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 I got really good at not disclosing information that mm-hmm. didn't have to be disclosed, right? I didn't want to lie mm-hmm. or present myself as someone else, but that just meant that I I just didn't have to disclose everything about me. And I still feel that that's true. I mean, I, I always think about, you know, if you are a cisgender straight person, uh, no one, you don't ever have to disclose that. You don't have yeah. to say oh, by the way, I'm straight and I'm cisgender. Like nobody ever uh-huh. fucking does that, right? So my own part was like, why do I have to do that, right? Like, it's almost like we have to start challenging the idea of coming out, right? Like of, of a closet. Like, if, if you don't have to do it, why do I have to do it? So I that was my mentality back then with a the good dose of fear, right? And homophobia as well. It wasn't just resistance. It was like, well, also, I'm kind of scared. But to answer your question, first of all, they were segregated. There was the Spanish mass and the English mass.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: The Spanish mass, as you can imagine, was super animated with a live band. You know, with like oh,
1: full th- production.
2: Norteño, yeah. you know, kind of up music. You know, with the bass and the drums and all of that. And then the the Anglo, you know, the English mass was super kind of you know more traditional, mellow and so there was you already had this tension build up and then you have then people in the congregations who are wanting to introduce celebrations of day of the death yeah los muertos and setting up altars and and bringing in candles and flowers and like and and
1: skulls just skulls at all right
2: the image of a skull right and then la virgen de guadalupe again is that like you have these people dancing with these costumes and Like, it it looks like it's some sort of witchcraft thing going on, and maybe it is. And all those things, you know, were uh, created a lot of friction, right? But that, what it did is it it helped people develop a sense of power, right? Mm -hmm. And to also to to question why this was important. Why? Because we are marginalized, because this is part of my culture, my tradition, and I want to impart it to my children. And and those are the reasons why we need to fight for this. Right. And in that process, you start identifying with the uh, with the marginalized. Right. And and what it does, it creates an opening to have a conversation about who are those marginalized in our community. Right. It's me as an immigrant, but it's also me as a queer person. Right. Uh, It's also me as an undocumented immigrant in the U.S. Right. It's women within a patriarchal, machista community, you know, and like the nuns are, and, and the amazing thing is that you have, you know, this institution like the Catholic church, which has priests, men, right. At the very top. And then women, uh, nuns who are to be subservient to the men, uh, you know, an, a woman can never be Pope. Mm. Right. So the, the very structure of the institution is, it's so problematic. Um, but yeah, so to going back to your question, again, it's going back to really investigating that, you know, the idea of the oppressed. And that creates openings, right, to have conversations about all the different ide- oppressed identities and communities within, you know, any given group of people, and, and, to, and to bring your full self, right? So that you talk about about your experience right we're not talking about ideologies we're not talking about policy we're not talking about politics we're talking about your experience as a human your full self right and and in bringing that to the table right as a way to connect with one another so that's as an organizer th- those are the opportunities that i looked for right mm-hmm. and and it, and it didn't stop just at my identity as a queer person but it really Created opportunities to talk about uh, racism, to talk about colorism, uh, to talk about like the caste system in Mexico, mm-hmm. and and how that has really shaped our own understanding of class and and uh, and and race, right, within Mexico, which is so much different than the U.S. in a lot of ways. So all of those are ways to, right. So th- those are different, you know, uh, topics, I guess that you're able to then bring into the conversation when that opening happens.
1: I feel like you are such clearly such a like well articulated community organizer and have thought about these things really carefully. Like I can see through your practice that meaningful social change and art together can be really powerful and something that you're interested in. So for you, how is art and social change related? And what components do you need to for a meaningful, impactful presentation of some kind of art piece?
2: So I fully believe that you the art doesn't have to be connected to social change or social justice. I think that as artists, you know, we should be afforded the the freedom to just create whatever that means. And it's something that I more so now than before, bring up up because as people of color in the US uh, and, you know, again, someone from different marginalized communities, you know, that uh, there's always like this expectation that I'm, that my artwork has to be connected to Mm -hmm. some sort of social change movement, right? We're not afforded the opportunity to simply create like so many white artists, men, white men, artists have been able to do throughout history right Mm -hmm. that they can create just to create and we have to have a reason why we're creating um but having said that um like most recently well really it was 2015 that has been developing slowly i created the norte studio a ceramic studio as a way for me to just create right Mm -hmm. i before i went into this whole other part of my life around social change and and social justice, I was hyper-focused on becoming an architect. I really wanted to become an architect. That was a big part of why I ended up doing all of this, right, because I was undocumented, couldn't go to college, had to drop out. It was really devastating, experienced fraud, you know, in the process, It, it was bad. And that's why I got involved in community organizing because I was, I experienced, so intimately the you know, the, the ramifications of, of an oppressive racist system. And I wanted to change that. However, that little, that part in me, uh, they just, the is always wanting to create, to design, right? Like to look at our build environment, our build environment has been designed right all around us. And I've always been intrigued by our build environment from like the lid in my water bottle, right, to the packaging of like, you know, these crackers right on my desk. Everything around us has been designed and someone had to sit there and think and go through a design thinking process, right, to find the best solution. And that never left me. I mean, you know, with, uh, one, wanting to be an architect and, and engage in design thinking and never left me. So I started this business, El Norte, as a way for me to have, to carve some space to continue to just make things that are, um, that satisfied the, the side of me, the designer part of me. Right. Mm-hmm. So I'm making these spots, you know, these functional objects, I sell them online on fairs, you know, on, different stores and it's really satisfying and in a way something that really helps me keep a level of sanity and and like it really helped my mental health because this other side of my practice is so much involved in in very heavy topics right um and and all the work that i've done has if there's a connecting thread is my own story with displacements and movement of people within a geography and sort of what that means right So those are the the themes throughout it.
1: I think that's such a great point. Like we should just be able to express whatever. And yes, we have a lot of work to do in terms of justice because we can see it. But also we have these like, beautiful ideas that like, why not just like express them? So the previous podcast guest, she was a a playwright based in Mexico City. Her name is Paula Zelaya Cervantes. She's awesome. And every episode we get the guest to ask the next guest a question. So Paula has a question for you. When did you first know you wanted to make art professionally? Or like, when was the first inkling or spark that inspired you to do, to make art a big part of your life?
2: I should say that I was raised by an artist. My mom is an artist, although she would never call herself that. Oh, what does she do? She does everything. I mean, you know, she, you know, she's single, single mom, you know, single parent household, and she was always hustling. I mean, she had her jobs, but also like all the other things that she would do. Mm-hmm. She would say that she's a crafter, right? But the reason why I think she's an artist is because of the way she thinks, right? Her ability to just like problem solve is incredible, and so I grew up right with uh, you know she had this table full of materials all the time you know. What did the, she make? She was always hustling things right to make a living right to yeah. bring you know home mm-hmm. points. So it would could be like it kind of changed by season. So she was Christmas, she would make all these like beautiful, intricate Christmas decorations, you know, she was like embroidering and sewing and painting. So I grew up with that. So I guess in a way kind of, I've always seen art and creativity as a way to, to like hustle and, and make some coin, make a living. Uh, it never felt like something that was, I don't know, like unattainable. But to be more specific, it was in high school, My art teacher in high school taught me how to paint large. She built and designed some beautiful sets for the school plays. Not your average like school play designs. So she really saw, you know, I'm still learning English and whatnot, but she saw my ability, right, that I could really sketch well, draw. I had a talent for the arts. So she took me under her wing and started teaching me how to paint backdrops. You know, and, you're, and these are very large things. So in the, it was my senior year in high school. There was a mural in town in this racquetball that she had painted about 20 years before that, and it was really like faded and chipping off. And she was like, "Hey, this the county commission wants to repaint this, and they're asking me to repaint it since I painted the original one. But do you want to do it?" If you want to do it, I will give them your name. And I was like, sure. Yes, whatever. It pays? Okay. Yeah. So she like, you know, gave me that that gig. And so then, you know, I was contracted by the county commissioners, right? This is like a like a government entity, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they, I put a bid for it. You know, they offer me half the money that I asked for. But then I ended up painting. I have no idea what I was doing. I tell you (laughs) that I had no clue what I was doing, but I did it, right? I painted it and it turned out much better than I ever imagined. I was, I'm still pretty proud of that job. Yeah. Uh, And they ended up paying me what I asked for originally. They liked it so much. Like, wow, you're actually legit. We're going to pay you the full amount that you asked for. So that really was a big lesson on trusting my own instincts and, and really like taking a big risk. Like, I was sure in my abilities, but I had never done something like that. So it's like you have to take the risk and do it.
1: Yeah. Well, murals have taken a huge part of your, I think, life since that moment. Like, one of the big projects, I think, uh, that we noticed was the Horizontes project. Yes. And we're wondering if you can talk a little bit about that.
2: Well, I guess it's a large scale community engaged art project, right? That is based and it's hyper local. So it's based in Wichita and it, and it engages these two neighborhoods, two historic neighborhoods in the north part of town, one known as the North End and another one as Northeast Wichita. And these are adjacent to downtown. And the North End has historically been populated by mostly brown people, mostly Mexican immigrants, and most more recently uh, Southeast Asian uh, immigrants as well. And then Northeast has been the historic black neighborhood in the city. And there were so many similarities in those two neighborhoods and the challenges that they've faced over the years, the needs that the community have right currently, uh, the challenges that you find in those neighborhoods uh, around a gradual divestment uh, from the city for businesses, a lot of empty retail space, schools who are underfunded, uh, overpopulated, a lack of programming for youth and, and adult services, on and on and on and on. Kind of your Quintessential US POC populated neighborhoods, right? But that don't have a lot of uh investment from the town. So I really wanted to find a way to talk about how to bring investment into the neighborhoods, but also uh actively prevent the displacement of people that comes through gentrification right and with that i really wanted to challenge ourselves as artists and our role in being complicit with the displacement of people through gentrification that we have seen all throughout different communities and you know in the u.s or even in canada something that i saw in toronto while i was there
1: we specialize we have our own special brand for sure
2: yes so uh you know again because of of the it's like this is not new like we at this point is that we already knew that artists are used as a tool by developers and often city governments to sort of quote unquote clean up an area bring up property value you know make it uh attractive to developers and then uh, displaced people that live there as gentrification expands. So I wanted to have the conversation from the beginning, but not stop there, but actually start looking at models, right, that that really look at how to prevent that gentrification. So that meant that we develop a very robust uh, engagement process that included a survey where we sent people going door-to-door, canvassers, talking to neighbors about what are the the things that you want and the things that you need in your community. Uh, and it's quality, quality of life things, things that talk about workforce development, business, entrepreneurship, support, outdoor spaces, parks, public art, housing, uh, and education, right? Mm-hmm. And we had a couple of community psychologists that really helped us develop that survey so that it was effective in getting the data that we wanted. You know, we had uh, so many interviews with people one on one, and all those conversations really also h- helped shape the focus of the survey. We did research on different oral history projects that have been done in both neighborhoods as well. So we relied a lot on digging up the history that was already there. You know, we hired photographers mm-hmm. from the neighborhoods to photograph some of the people that were interviewed as well, because we wanted to humanize people, right? It's, this is not just data, I wanted data because I know data it's what city governments will yes. listen to, but I also didn't want to stop there. It's like this data came from people, so I wanted to humanize that data by actually putting people forward right and we and with that, it was important that we also address head on black and brown solidarity and what that actually means, and for us, it meant that we were gonna do workshops, educational workshops that talked about the root causes of migration. Why are we here to begin with? To talk about colorism and within uh, communities of color, right? So why is there so many prejudices that we find within our own communities? We talked about, you know, racism in the U.S. and understanding that context. We talked about redlining and practices of, uh, of divestment right? Specific to these neighborhoods. Again, because we assume that the people who are subjected to these inequities understand their own history, but often that's not the case. So many times we don't even understand why we're in the situation that we're in. Mm -hmm. But again, it was like looking inward. Uh, And to be quite frank, a big part of the motivation behind the entire project was my own just like being tired of being in front of groups of white people all the time, educating them about all of these topics, right? I spent so many years now here in Wichita doing workshops and trainings around racism and around inequity and how to create more equitable spaces. And I was just so tired of doing that and not actually doing that work with my own community. And in addition to that, I was often, I'm the, like the only, the, kind of your token brown person at the table, right? I mm-hmm. was asking, where are the other artists? Where are the artists of color? How come you're not inviting queer artists? Where are women? Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, we don't know where to find them, but we found you, right? So we hired close to 40 artists for this project that came from those two neighborhoods, Right. Out of those 40 artists, only one was white. And it was intentional. It was like, let me show you where the artists are. You're just, you're not looking, right? We also wanted the, the art that we created as part of this challenge to the displacement of gentrification. We wanted the art to look like the people in those communities and those neighborhoods, right? Mm-hmm. So the artists that we hired grew up, currently live in those neighborhoods, right? So they have a, a connection to it. And, um, and, and it was really a powerful experience, right? The biggest one that we painted was a grain elevator. Camila, you alluded to that and it's a a grain silo or grain elevator. I don't know if people in Canada are familiar with them.
1: Well, we might have a picture if people want to go to the show notes. Yeah, for sure. Uh,
2: so basically it's like this long, tall structures that, um, follow the train tracks all across the city and the train tracks divide they go in between these two neighborhoods. Mm. Like literally you go across the train tracks and you're in the black neighborhood, right? And vice versa. Uh, Also right along the tracks is the highway I-135. And I, the interstate highway system in the U.S. was also, um, it's uh, infamous for the history of displacement as well. When they started being built, you can go to almost any city in the U.S. that has an interstate highway and it goes right through the historic black neighborhoods, right, and they use eminent domain as a tactic to to displace, to tear down houses, to destroy communities. And that shows you the value, right, Or, or the lack of value that these communities had for governments, right, 50 years ago when the highway was being built. So it's not unique to Wichita, right? Like Mm -hmm. it's happened all across the country, right? In Northeast here, that neighborhood there, uh, because of segregation, they had their own sort of main street, Cleveland Street, with the theater, with doctor's offices, lawyers, Mm -hmm. grocery store, you name it. And then this highway was built just like a block east of it. So it totally Mm -hmm. cut off access to the area and it also uh, decimated so much housing. That, in addition to desegregation, it totally killed that economy and the whole strip of commerce, right? So now there's been efforts to renovate that theater. They it was saved from being demolished, and there's uh, different community groups raising money to renovate it uh, as the only African American theater in town. So we wanted to partner with them and bring attention and resources through the project, right? Also in uh, in the, um, in the North End, there's the Nomar Theater District, very similar history, segregated theater. It became, you know, with like the Mexicans and the balcony type of signs, it became mm-hmm. the first desegregated theater. Now it's set in unoccupied, but there's some efforts to renovate and redevelop the area. So that's where we concentrate our work. So there's these two very similar neighborhoods with very similar histories and very similar opportunities kind of right now and we wanted to use art and the project as a way to bring more attention and resources and to energize people and to continue to create to interconnectedness right to intentionally Mm -hmm. uh introduce and build relationship among those communities and i can tell you that since then we have seen so many of the artists that have participated with us have been able to organize their own events, their own festivals, their own uh, exhibitions. They're joining boards, they're joining other art groups. You know, there's investment, you know, that has been able, that has been leveraged to bring into those theaters and there's community. So the, the, some of these things have been working, right? You don't never you never know how exactly how things are gonna turn out. But we knew that if we were very intentional and building the relationships and, the, and to rebuilding that social fabric again, that those things were going to come and they're happening. So it's really exciting to see that. And then to kind of top it all off, I call it a shiny object is a big mural. And that one, you know, it's the largest of its kind in the world, um, yeah. as far as we know. and it was painted by gleo gleo it's a colombian artist and she came down uh to paint it and it is a truly awesome piece of artwork and i don't mean to use awesome like i mean awesome in the sense of the world Mm
1: -hmm.
2: it is once you see it in person like it is really hard to understand The magnitude of this mural and the fact that she painted it and the image itself it's an image composed in the center you have this woman in her skirt we call her wichita miss wichita and her (laughs) skirts is actually uh, based on an image of a wachita lodge so here in this part of of of, uh, here in the city along the arkansas river the wachita tribe would you know they're nomadic and they would hang out here during the warmer months and build this beautiful, huge grass lodges, right, as they're dwelling. The mural itself, it's grounded by the indigenous community. There's these people literally building this lodge at the center of the mural. And then Wichita, this woman, is holding hands with another one. And that's based on a photograph from these two girls, Dona Vicky and her friend, her cousin, who... It was taken literally down the street from the gran Elevator on the soda shop back in the 50s. And then on, right under, you know, on their sides, there's these laborers that were uh, from a photograph of these railroad laborers that were literally laying down the tracks that are right there in front, in front of the gran Elevator. Right. Like we cross those tracks every day, several times a day. And that's how we got Mexican immigrants, because they came down to build these tracks. Right. This artery in the country really Uh, right next to them. There's these guys wearing these coats who worked at a meat packing plant. That was just across the street, another big Mm -hmm. part of industry and the economy and and like how the city was built. And then these bigger faces on the sides kind of disjointed are people who currently live in the neighborhood. Uh, Patricia, who is the mom of Quintus who was our right hand warrior, who was, you know, Gleo's, uh, one of Gleo's main assistants in painting the mural. Uh He's an underground (laughs) graffiti legend in the city. And (sighs) he got to work on this project. uh, And Miss Pat, which like, she became the mother, right? For the whole crew. Mm. So Gleo decided to incorporate her image in the mural, right? Mm. Who is in his twenties and he's also a creative and a father and it's starting a family here. He is on the mural. Angela Martinez, who's like this amazing force right in the like Latinx community in town, just like with a community center, her and her husband work with youth, right her stepson has a whole organization working with youth and you know and that are going into gangs. So like all of these people depicted in the mural are the community. However, these are the people who have constantly been erased from history. So I wanted to depict our communities in the most magnificent way so that we could never be erased anymore, so that you cannot drive down the highway, because you can see it from two different highways, you can kind of mm-hmm. see it from downtown, like you cannot drive past these and ignore the fact that we have been here from the beginning and we will continue to be here. And with reflection on it, I'm even que- it's led me to even question my own identity as an immigrant. Like, am I actually an immigrant or am I just mm-hmm. a visitor? I understand that I did not grow up in these lands, but my own history goes back to the land. So I'm not an immigrant. I'm, I'm a visitor. I'm visiting right? these communities, uh, but I didn't immigrate like my history Hmm. literally goes back to this land my own family history so it's it's even changed my own understanding of myself right Uh, as i reflect on the project it's like we were always here and now this is ginormous piece of art you can't ignore us like there's this black and brown faces all over it producing the mural was such a beast. I've, that was the hardest thing I have ever done in my life so far.
0: Let's talk about what you're doing currently, because we uh, read about it, and Camila was really excited about the exhibition.
2: It's, Paper Pavilions, yes. Yes, it's yes, yes.
0: And we read a little bit about your piece called Tecnotitlan. Seriously? I just like read the title, and I was like, what? Tecnotitlan? I was like, <laughs> what? And it's about kioscos, right?
2: Yeah, so this is um, a exhibition, Sean Starowitz is who um, curated that exhibition and invited me into it. The invitation was pre-pandemic, right? Like the project started as uh, as a way to think about the pavilion, uh, the quintessential pavilion, and how to provide different ideas, right? To even question that idea of the pavilion. Uh, and, and what we could present for it, right? Imagining a different thing. Right,
1: because it's a public space and is what but,
2: I'm gathering. Right, right, it's mm-hmm, a public yeah. space, right? And when you think about art fairs, right, it's usually like the, you know, the Mexico Pavilion, the Canadian Pavilion, and then you get to see kind of um, a selection of artists from those, you know, those countries mm-hmm. and whatnot. So it's really thinking about that idea and and imagining something different. For me, really, the, the first thing that came to mind was el kiosco, right, or a kiosk. Uh, growing up in Mexico, uh, Monica, you know this, you know, el kiosco, it's like yes. it's a, a centerpiece of, of public life. In uh, la plaza principal is where you usually you find the kiosco. And that's like our stage, right, for public life. Kioscos are used for music, for theater, for dissent and protests government campaigns to like vaccinate people.
1: So for people who are listening to this and can't really imagine what a typical kiosko might be like, what would you say? How would you describe it?
2: It's like a is this structure that it's uh, usually hexagon or octagon in shape uh, yeah. and, and it has it's elevated typically uh, from the ground so it literally kind of like a stage a center stage that you walk around all the way 360 And it has a roof. And usually, historically, they're very ornate and elaborate. They come from this kind of northern African Moorish style of architecture, highly decorated. That's how it eventually makes its way into Spain, right? And then to Mexico. So they're usually kind of iron, wrought iron style. But, you know, right, and painted. But, you know, there's so many different, it does not. The only way that they look. You know, there's so many different variations that you see nowadays, more minimalist, you know, modern approaches to it. Some are super kind of low budget DIY. Some are very fancy and like almost like royal, very royal looking. Literally the center stage, right? The definition of that. So when I thought of a pavilion, that's of course immediately where my mind went. But in thinking of the pandemic, it's like, Here's this quintessential piece of public like in Mexico, and I couldn't help but think about the absence of that right now, right? And I built this like almost like mystical technicolor landscape, quasi-urban, futuristic landscape of what a public space could could be, what I wanted it to be. And I wanted to get lost in it, right? I wanted my mind to go in there and imagine it. And my hope was that as people saw it, that they can picture themselves as well. Just like walking in there, playing around, climbing, going up and down and really exploring this magical space. Uh, Again, uh, escape, I wanted escape, right? Into something that was happy and magical.
1: Techno Titlando, like what, how do those worlds mix together? Like, why did you choose that?
2: Well, it is, in my understanding, you know, the idea of a public space is uh, like the, the kiosco, it's such a, uh, it's something that came from Europe, right, through colonization. Or, I mean, it came from Northern Africa into Spain to colonization and then into the Americas. But the, our understanding of public space. Is also shaped by our own indigenous traditions in Mexico, right? And you have places like uh, Tenochtitlan, and kind of just vast plazas and avenues and spaces for worship and, and governance and 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 just like education, all of these things, right, that are part of these indigenous pre-Columbian cities in the Americas, and that is very much a part of public life go to a mercado un mercado like
1: yeah to
2: me that's one of the places that has remained like there's so much essence of our indigenous public life is still baked within a mercado so you know when when i was thinking about a, a title i was like well this is definitely like super techno right like i can have a rave in there anytime Or also just like this technicolor landscape, right? Mm -hmm. And then in reflecting on how indigenous life has shaped, you know, it's still in our built environment. It's like, oh, (laughs) titlan, that's it.
1: Yeah, it's it's such like a playful way to go about it. And I think, yeah, the playfulness is so needed. We need like some hope.
2: (laughs) And that's what I wanted. I just wanted some landscape that we could all skate to. And it's fun, you there. know. I like, couldn't I couldn't present the actual object. So instead it's a photograph. That's also kind of a departure of some of my work. Usually, you know, they are installations. The work that I present in a gallery typically are installations and sculpture. So we couldn't do that at this time. So um you know I enlisted my good friend Hugo Salada Romero, who's a watermelon born uh, artist who lives in here in Wichita where he's my dear friend so he helped me figure out the photography side of it you know and and that's what is being you know shown as a photograph so yet again I'm taking another departure in my own practice but crafting wouldn't have it any other way
0: yeah (laughs) that's so beautiful what is a merienda a snack that you've been enjoying lately and it doesn't have to be food it can be a song a book an article Whatever you want to share with, with our audience.
2: Well, I've been indulging, and I mean indulging, on desserts this <laughs> whole pandemic. Yes, I've been getting really good at like making cakes too, oh. with like fancy fillings and like layers. And I have a huge sweet tooth. Like that's my Achilles heel. It's like we've just been making so many desserts, and it's comforting. It's like whenever the world is literally burning
1: oh my god and, straight
2: up and like i'm so exhausted emotionally and mentally about the state of this fucking country you know yep. it's like i'm gonna eat a delicious slice of key lime pie or like this chocolate cake with a chocolate ganache filling in a blackberry compote it was so did you
0: make that Yes. What? I think it speaks so much about your practice that you were saying. It's like, I like working with my hands. I like just getting into new things. I just doing stuff. And the stuff and like,
2: oh, Totally. What? I mean, I have this like bending wheel, like a little turntable for my ceramics. And like that thing is in the kitchen. And that's what Don't I- Don't tell I me that. To like, to, like uh, you know, to like- uh, I see- Ice the cakes. Cause...
1: I have a follow up. Do you like create your own recipes? Do you have a recipe book or like online a website that you really like?
2: No, so it's kind of a little bit of both. Uh, I've been, we both, my partner and I have been looking at uh, the Preppy Kitchen. Preppy uh, kitchen. Okay. Yeah, he has a, uh, you know, like we started funding his YouTube videos and he's got a blog and uh, so it's a little bit of both. Like there's technical things like that. that I'm, I just want to know what the recipe takes. But once I know the basic recipe, then it's like all bets are off. Oh, like I said, my mom is an amazing baker. So like she's, you know, taught me so many things. Like she would make these gorgeous cakes for our birthdays, you know. So I've, I've learned a lot from her.
0: Shout out to uh, Armando's
2: mom. Yeah. Vicky. And-
0: yeah. And to wrap up uh, the interview, we'll ask you if you can ask a question to a fellow artist in the Americas right now. What would you ask?
2: I was thinking about this and I'm like, what am I gonna ask? I don't know. Um, for some reason, Celia Cruz is like the first thing that came to my mind. Uh-huh. And what I want to ask is what role did Celia Cruz play in your life? <laughs> then you know, it might be presumptuous of me that you know that they assuming that they know who Celia Cruz is. But there was so much about Celia Cruz that was so intriguing and captivating to me growing up and as an adult, right? The more, the older I got, the more I learned about her as a human. And, and of course, I love her so much. But, you know, as a small queer boy, it's like those shoes, like, oh, what? No. Those yeah, legs. No, the whole look. it's like, <laughs> if anything, she showed me what could be possible. If she can do that, then I can do it too, right? And that's huge. As a kid, to see that, it's like, wow, she's getting away with this. Like, this is amazing. Um, So, yeah, it's like, how? what role did Celia Cruz had in your life, right?
0: I'm very
1: excited to ask this to the next
0: guest. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) Also, what a great way to finish the podcast.
1: Thank you so much for being Merindeando Con Nosotros, Armando. It was such a delight. Um, There's Norte Studios, your ceramic studio is online and we should all go check it out. Do you ship to Canada?
2: I ship worldwide.
1: Wow. Perfect. What music to our ears.
2: Yes. Okay.
1: Okay. Thank, Thank you so much.
2: This was so much fun.
1: We are speaking to you from the shores of this beautiful Zaga Igan, known to some as Lake Ontario in Toronto or Dagarondo. This is the ancestral territory of the Haudenosaunee, or Longhouse Confederacy, the Anishnabek Nation, the Wendat, and the Mississaugas of the Credit. This land is covered by the Dish with One Spoon wampum and Treaty 13, also known as the Toronto
0: Purchase. At Aluna, we remember that people can begin to heal when they are hurt. We are committed to artful participation in disagreements. We are committed to unsettling ourselves towards connection, respect, and justice for all people who now live in this city, which has been a meeting place since time immemorial.
1: Radio Aluna Theatre is produced by Aluna Theatre with support from the Toronto Arts Council, the Ontario Arts Council, the Canada Council for the Arts, the Department of Canadian Heritage, and the Metcalf Foundation.
0: Aluna Theatre is Beatriz Pisano and Trevor Shelness with Sue Ballant, Radio Aluna Theatre is produced by Mónica Garrido and Camila Diaz Varela. For more about Aluna Theatre, visit us at alunatheater.ca, follow at Aluna Theatre on Twitter or Instagram, or like us on Facebook. Miigwech and Nyawangoa.